This is the Tech Wellness Podcast from techwellness.com. News, information, and analysis designed to bring understanding, awareness, and balance to our relationship with technology. Your host today, Dr. George Carlo and August Bryce. Welcome to the podcast. We're so glad you're here. Today, we're going to talk about wireless energy, the information-carrying radio waves that make sure all of our super important Instagram posts can be seen by the world. Should you be worried about this invisible energy? It's everywhere. Is there anything you can do? Well, yes, there is. And we're going to give you some ideas. But first, just a little bit about us. I'm August Bryce. I'm a trained journalist and a news producer, co-founded an advertising agency, and I've been studying this topic for about 20 years. Now you might be saying, that's a weird thing for her to study. Why? Well, I'll take you back. Remember when cell phones first came out, they were like the size of a toaster. (laughs) I'm about that hot too. Now for you kids, I want you to Google brick phones you are going to totally crack up. So anyway, we got one of these things and right away it made me dizzy and I got huge headaches and then my fingers would tingle. I would ask people around me, oh my gosh, can't you guys feel this? No, they couldn't. Well, now I understand why. I'm actually special and there's a name for what I have, electromagnetic hypersensitivity or EHS. I can feel EMFs specifically the radio frequency radiation that powers all of our wireless. Come to find out, about 5% of the population has this now, and most of them don't even know it. So I started to try and figure out why I was feeling this feeling that no one else was, and I really wanted to make it stop. That search led me to Dr. George Carlo because he had written this book. I mean, the book. Cell phones, the invisible hazards of the wireless age. George had led the cell phone industry's first study of EMFs, specifically wireless energy, which really didn't go well for them. And George wrote this amazing book. Dr. Carlo is actually a world-recognized scientist. He's an author and attorney. Over the last 35 years, he has published more than 250 science and public policy papers. He's got several patents, including one with me. He teaches at the university level, and oh, he's been on Dr. Oz and on Oprah, just about every news program you can think of, from the Today Show to Good Morning America, CNN, and Fox News. This man is amazing. You really should go to techwellness.com and read more about George. And while you do that, let's welcome him to the podcast. Hello, August. Good to talk to you again. It's always so good to talk to you, George. This whole area of EMFs is really mainstreaming right now. Wireless energy, Wi-Fi RF, more and more people are talking about it. They're really reaching out to me. They've got lots of really good questions about their health, their safety, their kids. So, George, what are the most important things to know now? Well, you know, the first thing is that there's a lot of information out there, tremendous amounts of information. You know, we started work on this back in the early 1990s, and there was work going on in the military and in the private uh, sector all the way back into the late 1970s. So there is an enormous amount of information in terms of what we know about how this technology has evolved, about how this technology interacts with life, including uh, human beings. The science is so vast that it's almost impossible for those who are not sort of living it every day 
to pick up on the nuances. So I, I think the first thing that, that's important is that you know, we've been studying this for a long time, and there is no one new study that's going to make a big difference in terms of what we know. Probably by the late 90s, we knew most of what we needed to know in terms of there being red flags, in terms of potential human health effects, that there needed to be information that could be put out into the medical community so that doctors knew how to address uh, conditions like electrohypersensitivity, which, which you detailed in the, in the opening. And also, uh, we know enough now that uh, we should be focused on precautions. You know, how do we fix this? How do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our, our families? So like any technology, there's, there's always a race, if you will, between the impact of the technology on human systems and the ability of human systems to compensate for the insult of the new technology. Every time there's something new, uh, our bodies don't like it right off the bat. So we have to give our bodies time to be able to sort out and compensate for any adverse effects that might be involved. And uh, this, this goes part of the way the human being is constructed. Now, when you have a gradual introduction of a technology, uh, go back to electricity, for example, the introduction was gradual and most people were able to uh, compensate or adapt because the introduction of electricity was over a period of decades, 30, 40, 50 years before the electric lights, for example, were used in most homes. The difference with wireless technology is that when the cell phone came into uh, public use in the late uh, 1980s, it was it was a, a very uh, rare type of thing. People who had cell phones were very wealthy usually, and it wasn't a general consumer product. But by the middle 90s, it became something that uh, was inexpensive enough for most people to have. And we went from maybe 15 million people using cell phones in the early 90s to three or 400 million people using cell phones uh, by the early 2000s, and today uh, in the United States, the estimates are something like 300 million cell phones. So that what what's happened is that the technology has been introduced at such a rapid pace that there are many, many people who have not been able to adapt. A little bit in history, and we can talk about cell phones because I remember we were shooting a commercial. Uh, we were out in the middle of the desert, so we had to have this new brick cell phone, and that thing was crazy in my hands. It just felt like fire, and um, so I couldn't even hold it up to my ear. I had to hand it to somebody else to use, and I couldn't understand why they couldn't feel it, but that technology, can you describe how that technology has completely changed and morphed into the cell phones we have now? Okay, well, well back in those days, uh, August, you know, you're looking at the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, cell phones were the uh, equivalent of an, uh, an FM radio. That's, that's really what the technology was. It was a radio that carried a signal that connected into the landline phone system that we uh, have all across the country. That we had. In those days, we had landlines. And because it was uh, essentially a radio, 
uh, it had in that big brick, it had uh, transmission technology, it had reception technology, uh, it had to be able to have internal uh, settings that could lock in to these different FM signals so that uh, it didn't have dial-in knobs on the outside, it had dial-in knobs that worked automatically on the inside. And all of this little, this, these little electronic tasks that had to be done uh, took a lot of energy so that you had a huge battery in those. So those brick phones uh, were, were heating up mainly because of the battery, but also the transmission and reception functions we're using a lot of energy to make those happen. The other thing, you know, back in those days, we didn't have a lot of base stations so that the signals had to be carried uh, for miles in order to tie into a landline system. And in order to send a signal miles, you had to have enough power to push it. Now, think about this, an FM radio station let's say just a regular station that transmits music and uh, voice on FM that you'll dial into in your car. Think about how big the antennas used to be for those. They're enormous, you know, hundreds of feet high, and, you know, they would put fences around them so that people didn't get close. And what, what had to happen in the early 90s for people to be able to use cell phones is they had to consolidate all of that technology into something that you could hold. Now, if you just think about it a little bit, there had to be a whole lot of energy that was coming out of those devices so that those first cell phones were very different from what we have today. So that I would say, I mean, if you look at it up until about 1995, we were talking about cell phones that were really FM radios with all of that electronic uh, capability consolidated into a small unit. And when you consolidate all of that technology, of course, you're gonna generate a lot of heat, you're gonna generate a lot of energy. That's what was necessary. You know, if, if you're listening to an FM radio, you know, the dial goes a little bit too much to the right, you get interference. So that you would, you know, be driving along and you'd change the knob a little bit to make sure you got a clear signal so you could listen to. Uh... So what ends up happening though, is that the same was going on with cell phones. So that even though these signals, these original phones, these uh, analog phones, the FM type radio phones, they're called analog phones, but because they were uh, operating as an FM radio, you could only have one phone call going on on any frequency at one time or there would be interference. And back in those days, there used to be a lot of crosstalk. You'd be talking on the phone, and the next thing you know, you're talking to somebody in Germany. Because of that, they had to figure out ways of sending the signals that, were, that would allow for multiple phone calls to be able to be carried on the same frequency. And in order to do that, they had to digitize the signals. And the first digitization, you know, moving away from frequency modulation to digital uh, modulation uh, were the PCS phones uh, that were uh, introduced in 1996-1997. Okay, so that's how we moved from the analog phone into the digital phone. The reason for it had to do with the industry being able to carry more phone uh, phone phone calls on each frequency band. And I think that the reason I want to talk about this is because just the nomenclature alone, let alone the technology, 
aspects of the, the difference in these phones, I think it's really confusing consumers as to what they should be concerned about. And I hear it all the time. We talk about EMF which, of course, means electromagnetic fields. We talk about EMR, which is electromagnetic radiation. We talk about RF, which is radio frequency, non-ionizing radiation. And then we talk about microwave energy. So just really, like in one sentence, explain what technology, what kind of wireless energy is being used right now to operate the smartphones and cell phones we use today. The the PCS phone was the first generation. We're now operating in most places with the fourth generation. And people are talking about 5G, which is a fifth generation. So we're looking at the technology of carrying this information, changing almost completely every four or five years. So it's a moving target. So when you ask a question that sounds like a simple question, what are we using today? It has to be put in the context of how we got from an FM radio phone in the early 90s to the smartphones of today where you can download movies. The technology is very, very, very different. So that when you have multiple types of modulation, you have signals that are unpredictable in terms of how the body reacts to them. So when you have signals that are unpredictable, Uh, your body reacts to them as though they're invaders so that the body tries to protect itself. And this happens all the way down to the cellular level. And most of the health problems that people uh, experience um, have to do with the body going too far in terms of initiating protective biological cascade. And what that means is that body senses an invader and then uses everything it has to uh, fight off the invader. And when that happens, other normal physiologic functions become compromised because the body doesn't have enough energy to do it all. So, so you end up with a situation where your immune system becomes compromised because your body is using energy to fight off this invading signal. So now you become more vulnerable to the flu, for example. Same thing happens if you uh, maybe are predisposed to gastrointestinal problems. And what happens then is that your body is using energy to do things that are not related to digestion so that you end up with inefficient digestion. And sometimes this leads to diarrhea, sometimes it leads to constipation, or maybe it just leads to abdominal pain. The complexity of how these signals from the environment interact with human physiology is one of the things that makes it so hard to uh, to sort out from a cause and effect point of view, because it's really complicated. It is, and when I I, I feel somewhat gifted, and I remember you're the first person who explained electromagnetic hypersensitivity to me, and I said, you know, it's really cool. I can feel the energy, and I I know when my phone is on without even looking at it. And you said, well, you know, maybe that's not such a great thing. That just means that you may be electromagnetic hypersensitive. And as I went to doctors and looked more into it, I discovered that actually that was the case. But when I try to explain this to other people and why I have concern for friends, family, and the population in general, I think of it as just another pollutant that our body needs to deal with that if we can mitigate that exposure somehow, our body might not have to fight that particular pollutant. I did a video a long time ago where I said, here, 
It's like drinking a glass of beautiful, clean, perfect water. That's that's no exposure at all. Versus this glass of dirty water. I can drink this glass of dirty water and I may or may not have a biological reaction. Just depends, right? My body might compensate. I might be great with this dirty water, but my body might not be okay with it. Again, I might have some nausea. I might have some gastric distress of some type because I'm drinking this dirty water. So why drink the dirty water if I don't have to? Why be exposed to the wireless energy if I don't have to be exposed? And as you just explained it, some bodies may react and some may not. That's absolutely correct. And looking at this as another pollutant is the right way to look at it. It's absolutely accurate. Uh, but there is a difference because with most environmental, you know, insults, environmental pollutants, they're transient, meaning that they're there for a while and then the wind blows them away. Even things like pollen, where people have allergies to pollen in the spring, you, you, you're able to have that be taken away by natural processes. The difference is that with an information carrying radio wave, it's not only the the radio wave that comes from your phone that impacts the energy field around your body, but it's also the radio waves that are standing in the in the environment from other people's phones, so that now you have a an accumulation of standing waves in the environment that don't go away. Difficulty is that while it's it's reasonable to say I'm not going to drink the dirty water. With the information carrying radio waves and the, the dramatic increase in the amount of wireless technology, meaning the number of radio waves that are out there in the environment, um, you can't really get away from it. And uh, in, the, in the documentary film, um, Generation Zapped, there's a great quote by my friend and colleague, Ula Johansson, where he poses in the film, he says, if I were to ask you how much more uh, radiation am I exposed to today than 10 years ago? He says, is it twice as much? Is it three times as much? He says, no, it's a quintillion times more. That's a one with 18 zeros. And that's the truth. So that the, the, the difficulty here is that we're never going to be able to get rid of the exposure. Uh, completely. We can minimize it. We can do things that, you know, maybe, you know, change the waves a little bit, protect us a little bit from the waves. There are a number of things that we can do from a physics point of view, and we certainly need to do all of those things. But we also have to make sure that our bodies are in the best position to adapt. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be about adaptation. It's not going to be about eliminating the exposure because that um, that horse is already out of the barn. We're never going to get rid of wireless. It's here for good. And that's my combination of my Tech Wellness 10. Uh, the things that I do for my body and my life to stay strong with all of this wireless exposure around me, I have the, you know, the primary precautions, like I use an AirTube headset and I carry my phone on a case so I don't have to have that near-field exposure, like that energy's not right in my hand. I use a stylus whenever I can. I turn my phone on airplane and then I download emails and texts 
and uh, voicemails. And then I turn my phone on airplane and I answer them and read them. So I, I do these things, but at the same time, I take certain vitamins. I make sure that I've reset my circadian rhythms. I treat my body really good to stand up against the wireless onslaught. And, and you can do it, right? I mean, you don't find yourself missing out on life because you're taking these precautions, right? No, no, no. I, I think this helps us, of course not. I feel better and I can also stand up to other stresses. It's, this isn't the only stress in my life, wireless energy, uh, in any of our lives, right? So it just helps me, I think, live a healthier, better life. I want to talk because people ask me all the time, how close is too close? How much is too much? So about five years ago, and you're talking about how the technology is changing, but about five years ago, a meter came out that can measure energy between the 10 megahertz and 8 gigahertz level. And that happens to be the cell phone wireless energy is right in there. Those microwave electromagnetic fields. So I can measure the energy, and I love the meter that gives me a numeric readout. Because I can compare it to the numeric readout coming from other things that are on, like the Wi-Fi or, you know, somebody else's phone. And I understand that the signals vary depending on how close you are to the base station or the tower, depending on, you know, the amount of energy your phone has to output at that particular moment. But right now, to me, this is the only physical example of seeing that energy. And to me, the less, the better. And the scientific community has, I believe, confused this issue so much because like, I have a, a readout on the various levels of RF energy that are considered safe by all these different organizations all over the world. And there's actually 12 to 15 different safety levels. And they vary widely. When people ask me, what's the safe distance? What's a safe level? My answer is, well, the further away, the better, and the lower the number, the better. Do you have a particular way you would answer that question? What makes it difficult is that you can measure what comes from the device, and that's one side of the coin. That's the, the physics part of it. So that think of it this way, that you have the device, whether it's a cell phone or any other device, and your meter is able to measure what's coming from there, and that's good. Um, the standards that exist now all across the world are based only on that one dimension, what comes from the device. From a practical point of view, you know that no matter where your device is, between the device and your body, there's space and there are things that go on in that space, like signals that come from other people's devices, like energy that comes from your own body, like energy that comes from other things in the environment. The atmospherics play a role, temperature, pressure, the amount of moisture that's in the air. All of those things have an impact on how what comes out of the device travels to your body, and then it has an impact on how your body reacts to it. So that the other side of it is the biological response, and that biological response is unique to every individual. That's what makes it difficult. 
Now, the things that you're doing, August, that are, you know, healthy living interventions, you're taking care of your energy cycles, your, your uh, circadian and ultradian rhythms, you're using supplements that uh, have a purpose, you're exercising, you're doing all of those things, they put you in a better position to adapt so that you're different from the person who doesn't do those things in terms of how those information carrying radio waves impact you and then of course interface or the space between the device and you is constantly varied so when you look at the again it's it sounds like a simple question how much is too much how long is too long you know there are no simple answers and that's what makes this so so uh so difficult what do you need to do you need to keep the exposure as minimum as possible that helps from your device so you want, you know, distance helps so that if you use a, a headset, an air tube headset or a ta- uh, the talkie headset that you and I have uh, worked together on developing, that distance parameter is really important. Now, the other thing that's out there, there are, there are uh, technologies. One of them that I like is called the Quanta, which actually is an app that will alert you to when the emission from the phone is greater than an acceptable standard. And it will turn so- it off. And it, it, it can turn the phone off, put it into airplane mode. So, so, so those are all on the physics side. Okay, what comes out of the device? That's one side of the, of the coin. But before we move to the other side of the coin, would you sleep with the phone next to your head? No. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> I mean, I think we need to get that information out there. I think sure. there's still... <laughs> There's still a little confusion about it. Yeah, I, I, and, and again, you know, look, the, the young young kids they use their phone as uh, as an alarm clock. You know, they're worried about missing out on things, so they get texts in the middle of the night. Uh, this, from a from a biological impact point of view, is is mad. It's mad. Uh, it's difficult to say don't use your phone for an alarm clock. Uh, well, then how can I use my phone safely as an alarm clock? Well, you put it on well, airplane. You can use your phone in airplane as an alarm clock. Right. Or put it on the other side of the room. There are ways of doing it. And, and I think that what we, what we always want to be careful in, in this kind of discussion is that what we want to do is empower people to make the right choices so that they can still use their technology because it's, it's really a non-starter for most people now to give up the technology. And there's a whole discussion about whether or not it's fair that the technology permeated into society the way it did without proper testing and without proper monitoring and all that stuff. But the fact is we haven't. How, how we got here is a different discussion. We're here now. So we really want to be, be able to empower people to make safe choices. And there are lots of them that people can be empowered with. And I hope those are the things that we talk about in future podcasts as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 71% of people queried said that they sleep with a mobile phone next to or near their head in 2015. Incredible. This is very alarming. One of the difficulties is that the impact that that has on them is insidious. So they're not going to get into deep sleep so that they don't sleep well. And they might blame that on something else. They're going to have focus problems because they're going to have sort of a grogginess the next day because they don't sleep, they don't sleep well. The defenses that our body has are uh, lessened during sleep. 
our metabolic rate goes down to something called, called the basal metabolic rate so that it's our body sort of powering down so that it can build up energy to be ready for the next day so that during sleep is when our bodies are most vulnerable. And then what we're doing by putting the phone under the pillow or next to the bed is that we're insulting the body, exposing the body at a time when it's most vulnerable. Uh, and there are other, other uh, sequelae to this or other, other consequences that will be individualized. So that if you have a person, let's say you have a person who's nervous or uh, is impatient. By doing this, uh, th the ability to adapt and compensate for nervousness is diminished so that those things that, um, you know, make them difficult to be around are going to be exacerbated the next day. So that you, and it's been, it's because of the of the interference with the energy from the phone with a body that's in a basal metabolic state that's operating in a powered down way uh, to as, as a means of preparing for the next day. So, so, so you have all of these things that most people would not attribute to the phone being next to their head. They would rather blame it on their spouse, blame it on the kids, you know, blame it on the boss. But you're talking about a neurophysiologic impact at a time when our bodies are most vulnerable. And I love this scientific explanation to just what I refer to as my delicious restorative sleep. Yes. You know, the, the interference. And I honestly, this is true, and my whole family will attest to it, if for some reason the Wi-Fi gets turned on in my completely EMF-free home, which I love, I will wake up without fail every single time the Wi-Fi is turned on. When in the middle of sleep, I will wake up, I will go look at the monitor, I will see that the Wi-Fi is on, and we'll turn it off without fail. Now, that's because I'm so sensitive. Uh, just because you may not be sensitive doesn't mean that the biological reaction isn't happening somewhere in your body. And I think that's what you're pointing out. Exactly. And, and it's hard to make the connection. Like, for, for example, if, if you don't get into deep sleep, your body does not produce melatonin. If your body does not produce melatonin, which is the repair and recovery hormone, you're not repairing and recovering from the damage that you do to your body just by living through the day. You know, repairing from sunlight, all of those kinds of things. There's damage that occurs that we normally are able to adapt to. Well, if you don't make melatonin, then you have premature aging. So you're not able to repair your skin. So that that's something that you can't look at it from one day at a time. This is measured over a period of years. So you're 60 years old, but you look like you're 80. That's the kind of thing that's insidious. The other thing that happens is this. If you don't get into deep sleep and the phone next to your bed will keep you from getting into deep sleep. You don't make melatonin. And if you don't make melatonin, you have low levels of serotonin the next day because there's a direct correlation between the amount of melatonin that your body makes and the amount of serotonin that you have available the next day because both melatonin and serotonin come from the same essential amino acid called L-tryptophan. Now, 
if you don't have high levels of serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that is there for alertness, quickness, agility, all of those things that help you get through the day. If you have low levels of serotonin, you're in a jam. So somebody might be going down the stairs and they trip or they're clumsy. It's because they have low levels of serotonin. They would never say, they would never put the two, the, the, the dots together saying, hmm, I wonder if I fell down the stairs because of having the phone next to my bed. Those are the kinds of things that are insidious, um, you know, insidious consequences that uh, vary from person to person, but they're real because the underlying mechanism is known. We know about melatonin. We know about serotonin. We know about the need to get into deep sleep. We know that the energy from blue light on screens, the energy from information carrying radio waves uh, in inhibit the production of melatonin because you can't get into deep sleep. So there's, there's a whole science that's out there. And it's really important that we're able to make the connections, but the message always has to be, there's something you can do about it. We don't, you know, it doesn't do us any good to scare people. No, there's no fear at Tech Wellness. There are just, it's an awareness creating solution based site. The Tech Wellness Podcast continues in just a moment. But first, the World Health Organization has designated EMF RF radiation from cell phones as a possible carcinogen in the same classes, things like diesel fuel. So if you're interested in reducing the amount of EMF RF exposure in your life, one of the best and easiest things to do is to use an EMF free headset when you're on a call or listening on your smartphone. At techwellness.com, we've been researching the best headsets for over a decade. And of all the models we've tested, we found the one that works the best, looks the best, and holds up the best. It's the Talky AirTube headset, and it uses a hollow tube to deliver high fidelity sound directly to your ears while keeping EMFs away from your body at the same time. The Talky AirTube looks great too. It's available in black, gold, and our exclusive rose gold colors. August uses hers every day and loves them. Right now, listeners of the Tech Wellness Podcast can get a Talky AirTube headset for themselves and save 50% off on one for a friend. That's buy one and get the second Talky headset for 50% off when you use the promo code PODCAST at techwellness.com. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. We're here again with Dr. George Carlo. We're talking about RF radiation and wireless energy, and it's a really good discussion. And you know, George, you're so smart, and it's such a gift to hear you speak to these, uh, these the, the cause and effects of this energy. And one of the studies that we feature on the site that I just love is a study about how the energy... Uh, and melatonin production affects metabolism. And there's actually a study, do you know about this one, uh, where uh, they measured the glucose levels before and after exposure to cell phone radiation and found that uh, melatonin decreased and metabolism changed, creating hunger. And yes. are you are you familiar yes. with the study? Yes. Okay. Yes. And that's another insidious thing. How could you ever think that your exactly. phone might make you hungry? Exactly. And it also depletes your ready energy. And that's the same, the same mechanism. So that when, you, when you're 
blood glucose level goes down, your body has to figure out how to replace that, how to replace that energy. So there's an entirely different cascade, biological cascade that ensues. And, and you look at things like diabetes, obesity, those are all conditions that are metabolically triggered. They're metabolic imbalances. And when we expose our bodies to these insults that are insidious, but they're constant, we compromise all of those physiologic mechanisms. So I'm going to ask one question and then say, get into the practical things that we can do. Is there any doubt that there's a connection? And... I don't think that there is. And so why don't more scientists speak well, up about look, this? There is no doubt. You know, I think that we've known uh, probably since the late 1990s that uh, we were on a pathway uh, that needed to be uh, addressed from a precautionary point of view. Uh, so there is no doubt. But the, the, the science is very complicated. And I think that when you... When you talk to scientists who are real scientists, they will, they will say, you know, on the one hand, it could be this, but on the other hand, it could be that. And you can have really good, honest scientific people come to different conclusions from the same data. And that doesn't mean that, you know, one, one group is right and the other one is wrong. It simply underscores how complex this is. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that there's a lot of noise around the signal. And separating the signal from the noise is very difficult because we have so many different biological outcomes that, are, that have been identified. The exposure is a moving target. You know, just the example of cell phones. You know, we had, you know, the first analog phones in the 1990s. And now, 20 years later, we have people talking about the fifth generation of signals, that the, the 5G. Well, that means that every four years, the technology changes dramatically. So that's a moving target. And uh, I think that when, when scientists look at, well, here's, here's one, other, one other example. You know, if you look at the medical literature, Okay, it takes about two to three years for new findings to pervade itself through the medical literature. Two to three years uh, on average. Even things that are uh, dramatic advances in medical science. They still take years to make it into the literature. And then it takes years for the practicing doctors who are out in the country in Oklahoma, for example, uh, to... Uh, you know, to read the journals and to catch up. And I'm, I'm, this goes for, you know, people all throughout the country who are medical practitioners. So, so the idea of uh, pervading into medical practice, new findings about diagnosing electrosensitivity, what lab tests work, you know, how do we interpret this? It takes about a decade for that to make it into the medical vernacular. And we're talking about a technology that's changing every four years. So that by the time something makes it into the medical vernacular, we've, we've changed two more generations of the technology. 
And speaking of that, can you explain the difference between 5G and what the, the type of waves that we're dealing with now? Because I understand it's going to be a millimeter wave. What does that mean exactly? Well, here's, here's what it means in, in general terms. Okay, every time you go to another generation of the technology, it's to allow more density of information to be transferred. Does that mean that my, my meter that can now uh, send signals up to 8 gigahertz will no longer be able to sense these millimeter waves? Uh, probably not. It depends on what the calibrations are. But, but again, the, the reason that we go from 2G to 3G to 4G to 5G are because consumers are asking for that. They want to have more clarity in watching movies on their phones. The industry doesn't make billion-dollar changes just because they feel like it. They do it because there's a demand for it. And that's important, that's important to know because it isn't like um, you know, the industry is trying to figure out some other way. They would be happy with 2G phones if everybody would use them and they'd make money. So when you move to another generation, there's a reason for it, and it is because consumers are demanding something. Now, with something like 5G, I saw a commercial on TV the other day that talked about with 5G, you'll be able to have emergency doctors who are in ambulances do robotic surgeries to help save lives, lives out in the field. Is that going to be practical? Probably. Is it something that most people would say, hey, that's, that's pretty good, especially if I'm the one in the accident. If you can save my life, I want you to. And the thing that's difficult is there's, always, there's, a, there's a cost for that. And the cost means that with 5G, instead of having the signals on base stations that are 100 feet high, they're going to bring the transmission technology, the infrastructure, to street level. So they're going to be five feet off the ground. A lot of these transmission um, stations, instead of being on high uh, towers, they're going to be at street level. And how does that differ Uh, from the mesh network that I discovered in Boston? There's a mesh network, different. uh, They look like Wi-Fi's or little mini cell towers all uh throughout downtown Boston. And the ambient measurement level was anywhere between 2,000 and 6,000. The, the, the mesh and the DAS, the distributed antenna system, all of those over these, you know, we're now coming into the fifth generation, all of those are, have evolved to respond to consumer demand. But how does that differ between fifth generation or is that 5G? It could be. It, it depends on, on what, how they use those transmission poles. They could put 5G on a, on a mesh pole and still have um, clear, clear signal, still, still function. And, and keep in mind that, you know, 5G becomes an option. Okay, like right now, like if you're, if you're driving and you look on your phone, you're going, you know, into the country, for example, you might switch from 2G to 3G to 4G. So 5G will just be one more option so that you might not be able to download a movie if you're in a 4G area, but when you have 5G, you will. Now, again, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that all this is fine. There are going to be uh, now more challenges in terms of adaptation. Uh, the, the 
exposure in the environment is uh, moving uh, one more uh, one more level, if you will. Uh, but it's important for people to understand that this didn't happen by accident. That there's a there's a consumer response. In other words, it, it's it's because consumers are asking for it. Um, so so that's important, and it's also it's also important to um, to to keep in mind that we don't know what the effects of millimeter waves are going to be. Nobody's ever studied them. We don't know. And the only thing that we can do in terms of risk assessment is to look at what we would call functional equivalents. What are the things about 2G, which has been studied quite a bit, uh, that are similar to what we're going to have in 5G? Well, we're going to have packeting. We're going to have code domain you know, uh, uh, modulation. We're going to have voice modulation. So there are a number of things that are going to be similar, but... Um, we don't know there's there's going to be guesswork involved in figuring out what the human health risks are going to be. You were talking about consumers are demanding this new technology. What's your read on consumers who are demanding less wireless energy in the environment? Well, you know, again, the, the commercial aspects of the way commerce works, those, those people who are demanding, and rightfully so, uh, less ambient, um, you know, information carrying radio waves and less ambient radiation, all that stuff. They 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 don't really have an economic constituency. They they don't have the power to change the economics. So their rights, in many many ways, are being stepped on. But the system says it's economically driven. And of course, the other part of this whole wireless infrastructure is that the since 9/11, the the safety overlay has been has become very important for first responders and anti-terrorism steps and anti you know cybersecurity steps, all that stuff. It's on the same infrastructure. Uh, so you know when when people say I want there to be less radiation, um, you know, I, in fact, I I heard this one day in a in a meeting, and I was uh, I, I couldn't believe what I heard. Somebody said, "Well, we we don't want the tower there." And something the uh, person from this particular company said, "Well, you want more terrorists in your neighborhood." And the fact is, is that you could construct an argument that says, if you don't have the uh, the most up to date infrastructure carrying signals, then you won't have the most up to date cybersecurity. And if you don't have the most up-to-date cybersecurity, you become vulnerable to bots and other types of things that are out there now, um, you know, in, in open, you know, they're out there. So it's a tangled web that we've. It's right. It's a tangled web, web uh, August. And the thing is, there, you know, it isn't like in the old Westerns where you have the, the good guys in the white hats and the bad guys in the black hats and you're able to see who's who. It isn't that way. You know, the industry is responding to what consumers are demanding. Consumers are enthralled with things that make their life easier. Yeah, people that run whole businesses from their cell phone, for God's sakes. So, so it is really complicated. And there are no simple answers. But, pre- but precaution makes sense in every aspect of this. So while individuals 
can be precaut you know put precautions in place about your own inner you know your own interaction your ability to adapt all of that businesses also should be precautionary you know i i was i was talking to a group of realtors one day and they said that they need to be on their cell phones and that the companies actually give them the cell phone so that they don't do personal calls on their you know real estate company's cell phone well you know when you have industries that require people to use devices that are potentially dangerous, we have something called the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that in factories and other, you know, with other occupations, look into that stuff. We have none of that going on now with wireless technology. So that there are some steps that can be taken from a public policy point of view that are precautionary, that are within the infrastructure uh, the, the system that we usually use to protect workers uh, that could make things better. So there's a lot that we can do, both as individuals, uh, as uh, public policy people. There are political things that can be done. And, um, you know, I think we, we have to chip away at it. Back in the 80s, when cell phone technology was converting from a military tool to a consumer tool, um, the the thinking about health effects that was in the public domain, not in the classified domain of the military, but in the public domain, was that if you didn't have high power, you didn't have enough energy to heat tissue. And if you couldn't heat tissue, then there could not be health effects. And that was based on microwave oven studies and those types of things that had been done in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. So, Based on the fact that it was low power, the industry was able to convince the regulatory authorities that they should be excluded from pre-market testing. And that low power exclusion is what allowed cell phones to come into commerce with no safety testing at all. So between 1984, when cell phones first came into use, and 1993, when the first questions about health effects and brain cancer were raised, cell phones had no safety testing at all. So you had a decade of use where uh, there were no guidelines, no emission guidelines, none of those things. Now, that the, the program that we ran uh, that I was part of uh, during the 90s, the WTR, some of the things that came out of the WTR program uh, that was put in place to fill in the data gaps that were there because there had not been appropriate pre-market testing. Some of those things like genetic damage, increases in the risk of tumors, uh, and some other things that were found in that program, had they been found in pre-market testing, cell phones would have had to have been changed before they came into the marketplace. So that the cell phones would not have made it into the marketplace had those data been available. And that's one of the things that... Um, uh, makes this difficult because you were able to get a product into commerce that permeated through society, never having been tested for safety. And when that became clear that it hadn't been tested for safety, um, there was quite a bit of misinformation then that was put out to the to the consumers, and uh, that's that's a tragedy. And there, of course, there is some litigation around this even now. Uh, so. Uh, those are those are some of the things that uh, that happened uh, because the 
low power exclusion was ill-advised in 1984. Right. And you give delicious detail and you explain it perfectly in the book, Cell Phones, Invisible Hazards, and the Wireless Age. Yes. If anyone's interested in yeah, getting the, the background, I, I love that book. Uh, anyway, so you you first introduced me probably seven or eight years ago to the precautionary principle. And I believe the precautionary principle still holds true. And if we can just really quickly go through the effective safeguards if we want to exercise the precautionary principle, which is basically, since we don't really know exactly what's going to happen, let's be careful. Let's uh, exercise some smart thinking when using this wireless technology as consumers. So what are those basics right now that you well, well, the first thing is, you know, distance. You want to keep the phone away from you. Distance is your friend because the further away the phone is from your body, the, the less the intensity of the field is and therefore the less of your tissue is exposed. So in other words, the further away you are, the less tissue is exposed. Oh, wait. Um, yes, that. But to, to that point, uh, you know, I, t- I measure things all the time. So I measured the other day different cases that people had sent us that either filtered the radiation or in some cases, there was that one case that had an antenna that you pull out of the case and then the signal became a lot stronger and the measurement of power density, which is what my meters measure, uh, actually went down. Right. But let's, let's say that, um, and again, you're measuring the physics, but let's say that the person was in between that antenna and the base station that it had to connect to. Now that signal has to go through the person to get to the base station. Oh, which is just such a scary concept. Isn't yeah, it? it is, but it's real. <laughs> but this is how the energy works. Okay, so this right. energy travels through walls. It travels through us. It's everywhere. But still, if we can at least avoid being right up against that energy, we're better off. That's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. We're, we're better off. That helps. Uh, look, there are also some products out there that change the energy field a little bit. They change the waveforms by filtering it, uh, by having it go through mesh. So some of those things are, are actually helpful from the physics point of view. You're not talking about the disks that you place on the phone. Well, I don't want to talk about any particular product. But in, in general, some of those technologies that alter the waveforms uh, can be helpful. So... Well, you can't really measure it because w- what your what your meters are are measuring are really coherent signals that they're able to resonate with. Okay, if you have an incoherent signal, your your meter won't pick it up, and it's the in, incoherent signals that trigger the biological response in most cases. But we cannot be sure if those disks or filters are working. Right. You, you cannot be sure. And, and that's why when you, when you talk about taking precautions, if there's a precaution that you can take that makes some sense, it's worth doing, keeping in mind there's no silver bullet. There isn't one thing that's protective. You have to do 
what we call primary prevention, which is minimize exposure, distance, you know, alter the physics if you can, all of those, that's primary prevention. Secondary prevention is making sure that our adaptive capacity is high. That has to do with the biology, the things that you do. You eat well, you exercise, you make sure that you get good sleep, all of those things, that increases your adaptive capacity. That's secondary prevention. And then there also is tertiary prevention. If you get sick, you have to figure out how to handle the illness of electrohypersensitivity. And that's a place where we don't have a lot of answers yet because the medical community has not joined in the, has not joined in the effort. And that's one place that I think we need to, as scientists and as public policy people, we have to focus on the medical community so that they understand the steps that can be taken in a clinical setting. And aren't you leading that with the adaptation project? Well, with the, with the adaptation project, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're, 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 we're trying to, we have some you know, doctors and clinicians who are working with us uh, and uh, we're, we're able to give people um, some, uh, some suggestions for how to increase their adaptive capacity uh, along with those primary prevention steps, you know, you know, minimizing exposure, using a headset, you know, putting the phone in airplane mode, don't sleep with it next to you uh, at night, you know, all of those things. Uh, that's uh, part and parcel to the secondary prevention aspects that we're doing in terms of increasing adaptive capacity. And I just want to cover once more those filters, discs, uh, you know, uh, add-ons to the phones. So what you're saying is you might as well get all of them because they might work. Uh, <laughs> it's loaded. I know it's loaded. See, I prefer not to recommend anything unless I know yeah. that it works 100% of the time. Yeah. Because then yeah. people have this false sense of security. And they're going to put a disc on the phone and hold it up to their head and say, look, I'm a superhero. You are absolutely correct. I I agree with you. And the the thing that is, uh, you know, the only mitigation in there is that we can never prove uh, exactly what those things do and how they do it. Uh, Exactly. We can't prove that they don't hurt us. And we can't prove that they do help us. Just. Just like that's that's the whole thing about the cell phones. They've, you know, the argument seems to be out there. Well, uh, you know, have we proven that they're safe? Well, have we proven that they're not safe? Right. You know, it goes both ways. So to me, I feel really comfortable because I can feel the energy, knowing that the further away I am from it, the better I feel, and uh, I, I want to share that awareness with people because. I continue to say just because you can't feel it or see it or touch it doesn't mean it's not affecting your body in some way. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just It's just like wearing a seatbelt. Let's just be practical. Right. And you're, you're absolutely correct. And it's sort of like, you know, the old saying, you know, we're up the creek, you know, but we do have a paddle. <laughs> and, and that's what we have to do. The science and the technology, all of that is part of the paddle. Uh, but we just don't have it all worked out yet. And Well and, said, Dr. Cardell. Thank you for bringing some clarity to this very complicated subject, which doesn't have to be complicated. That's correct. Okay. Until the next time. Yes. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Tech Wellness Podcast from techwellness.com. Your hosts, Dr. George Carlo and August Bryce. It's news, information, and analysis designed to bring understanding, awareness, and balance to our relationship with technology. Please subscribe and share this podcast and visit us at techwellness.com.